What up, everybody? Just a little reminder that the St. Dymphna's Playbook book is available wherever you get your books and eBooks. You can head on over to Ave Maria Press's website and use the code BEWELL, all one word, to get 20% off. Go get your copy now. St. Oscar Romero once said, Peace is not the product of terror or fear. Peace is not the silence of cemeteries. Peace is not the silent result of violent repression. Peace is the generous, tranquil contribution of all to the good of all. Welcome to the 129th episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want us all to remember to work for the peace of every single one of our suffering sisters and brothers by showing them our generosity and helping them find tranquility. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. One of the most positive things to come out of this pandemic over the last two years has been an increase in people seeking out mental health services, and this includes children. We'll start with some context from The Hill. Seven out of 10 public schools say they have seen an increase in children seeking mental health services since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, a study from an independent government agency has revealed. The Institute of Education Sciences found requests increased across all demographics, accounting for regions, school size, and level and percentage of minority students and students poverty. A slight majority of public schools surveyed reported that they moderately or strongly agree that they can effectively provide mental health services to those students. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that last month more than 40% of teenagers reported being, quote, persistently sad amid the pandemic. In April's evaluation of mental health and well-being, the study found 85% of schools have encouraged their staff to address students' emotional and mental well-being, and 56% have offered assistance to teachers on helping students improve their own mental health. More than 40% have created or expanded a mental health program for students or hired new staff specifically to focus on students' well-being. While a 56% majority of public schools said they at least moderately agree that they can effectively support students who need mental health assistance, about a third said they at least moderately disagree. Schools cited inadequate access to licensed professionals and and limited staff coverage and caseloads as factors that limit their ability to provide mental health services. So back to me, more kids requesting mental health services through their schools is a great thing. And part of the increase seems to be coming from our greater openness to discussing our mental health in the context of this pandemic. But we have to continue to advocate and vote for people and policies that will increase funding to our mental health programs in schools. This is the time in one's life where addressing mental health needs can have the biggest impact. Teaching our children to cope with their emotions, their emotional dysregulation, and other symptoms can change their lives for the better. So let's keep up the fight for adequate funding for mental health in our schools. It will literally save lives. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request. And today I'm going to introduce you to Blessed Angelina Marciano. (laughs) 
Born in 1357 in Umbria, present-day Italy, Angelina's father was the Count of Marciano, and her mother was the daughter of the Count of Corbara. By the age of six, she and her only sister were orphans. They were raised by their grandparents, and Angelina was married to a Count from a nearby region, but he died just two years later. So much loss, so much grief. She had no children, she had no family, and so she decided to become a Third Order Franciscan and started a little community with a couple of friends, running it out of the castle and a state her late husband had left her. She started working on helping those in need, but according to Wikipedia, Angelina's progress was arrested by the disturbance she caused in the communities where she called for young women to adopt religious life. She was doubly charged with sorcery, the imagined origin of her sway over women, and heresy because of her alleged opposition to marriage. Angelina defended herself before the king of Naples who dismissed the charges but expelled her and her companions from the kingdom in order to avoid further complaints. Back to me, she moved away to Foligno, going uh, to join an order there, took on a leadership role, and led the community to get formal recognition as a monastery by Pope Boniface IX. She led her little group through ups and downs and died in 1435, and within 300 years of her death, the order had 11 houses and 80 members. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. Blessed Angelina, pray for us that we will give generously to those who hunger for food and the word of God. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Catherine gets us started. Could you address the problem of balancing the need to make boundaries for our own mental health and the need to work or do hard things in relationships? E.g., when you have a family member who's very difficult, even perhaps manipulative, how do you hold the boundary of not interacting much versus the fact that you kind of have to since they're in close proximity? Let's start by joining in prayer for Catherine and everyone who finds themselves navigating the difficult balance between taking care of ourselves and interacting with people who are difficult to get along with. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Thank you so much for sending in this question, Catherine, and know that we'll be praying for you as you continue to work through this experience. It's really hard when we know we have to have strong boundaries with someone who impacts our mental health, but also know that realistically, they're near us and we're going to be around them from time to time. It makes it difficult to navigate what's best for us and having to consider how a manipulative person might spin us trying to set up and enforce our boundaries into something bad or wrong about us. When we try to enforce our boundaries and the manipulative person in our life acts like they're not doing anything wrong and we're the one causing some great injustice, it can be very discouraging. Let's take a look at Healthline to get some thoughts on how to recognize manipulative behavior. You may not recognize manipulation immediately since it's often subtle, but you might notice these key signs. You often feel tricked or pressured into doing things. It seems as if you can't do anything right. It no longer seems possible to say no. They often twist the truth. You often feel guilty or confused. Your efforts never seem to be good enough. Back to me. We might see things like invalidation of feelings, gaslighting, guilt tripping, victimhood, passive aggressive behavior. All of these things are a warning sign to us that we need to set up boundaries to keep ourselves safe, no matter how close these family members might live. Back to Healthline for how to do that. 
call out the manipulation. A good first step is to acknowledge that you're aware of the manipulation. It's normal to feel upset or pressured, but remember, that's how they want you to feel. Try grounding yourself or using breathing exercises to cool down and relax, and use respectful I statements to avoid sounding confrontational. Some examples of things to say include, it's upsetting when something doesn't go as planned. I wish things had worked out, but since I wasn't involved, I have no reason to feel guilty. Or, we made a deal and I did everything you asked. When you go back on your word, I feel deceived and disrespected. Or, I understand you might not remember saying you'd pick me up from the clinic, but I still have your message if you'd like to see it. Let them know how it makes you feel. Though good intentions sometimes lie behind manipulative tactics, it doesn't excuse a person's behavior. By telling them that their behavior affects you negatively, you can help them realize that manipulation isn't the answer. You might try these approaches. Acknowledge their perspective, like, I know you're stressed because you have a lot to do for this gathering. Or express your anger and hurt in a calm and polite way, like, I've asked you before not to shout at me. When you don't respect that request, I feel angry and sad. And explain how the manipulation affects you and the relationship by saying something like, when you lie to get my help, I lose trust in you. I also don't feel like helping when that happens. Your safety comes first, so if you don't feel comfortable talking to them alone, bring someone you trust or try a letter or phone call. Next is actually setting those boundaries. A boundary clearly states that you need help outside of the things you will uh, and won't do. For example, you might say, I need honesty in my relationships. If you keep lying, I'll limit our communication to essential conversations only. You can set the boundaries for yourself too. These might help you limit involvement with a manipulative person, such as choosing to leave when they use a certain tactic or deciding to see them only when others are present. Next is to avoid isolating yourself. While it's not always easy to talk about manipulation and other abuse, it often helps to discuss what's happening with someone you trust, another family member, a friend, a teacher, or a mentor, or a romantic partner. It can be a huge relief when even one other person understands and offers support. Avoiding some family members entirely can be difficult. Instead, you might try to prioritize connections with the ones who treat you with sincerity and offer unconditional love and kindness. And last, finding support. A family counselor or any therapist who specializes in family relationship dynamics can help you and your family address problematic behaviors and prevent these long-term effects. So back to me. I think that the idea of prioritizing connections with people who treat you with sincerity, love, and kindness is so vital. We have to take care of our own mental health, and we shouldn't feel guilty for doing that, even if it means separating ourselves from someone who lives close by. And I think it's worth mentioning here as well that boundary setting is precisely for these types of relationships where we're going to continue interacting with someone. If we were able to cut off a manipulative relationship entirely, we wouldn't need to set boundaries other than just cutting it off. But when we know we have to have a relationship with the person and we're actually going to be seeing the person, that's when this kind of boundary setting becomes so essential. So I hope all of that helps and just know that we're praying for you. Courtney is up next. My 10-year-old was diagnosed with anxiety last year. However, he's recently begun uh, exhibiting classic OCD signs, mainly focused on germs, sickness, and a bit of scrupulosity. He talks a lot about how sinful he is and how he has anxiety to suffer for Jesus. I've told him repeatedly that this is not something God would give him and that Jesus wants him to be free, not constantly suffering, but as humans, we will endure suffering. 
My question is, how do you continue helping a child grow in their faith when they tend to be scrupulous or so hard on themselves? Also, can you address the comments that OCD is just a form of spiritual attack? Someone in my life keeps telling me to quit labeling it as OCD and renounce it. I believe in renouncing lies from the devil, but I don't think that's what this is. Let's start by praying for Courtney, Courtney's 10-year-old, for everyone navigating OCD in the context of faith, and everyone who loves them and wants to help them. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Thank you for sending this in, Courtney. If your 10-year-old is showing these signs of OCD, one of the best things you can do is get them connected to a therapist who knows how to treat OCD in children. Exposure and response prevention is the evidence-based treatment for OCD, and it's extremely effective. It can be hard to find that sometimes, so it would also be helpful to locate some good ERP workbooks that might help you to take the time to learn about OCD as well. To ensure that you're able to provide the right type of support, finding peace and wellness can really take the help of an entire family, so um, learning about OCD as much as you can is a great place to start. There's a great workbook for kids that is reasonably priced on Amazon called Standing Up to OCD Workbook for Kids, 40 Activities to Help Children Stop Unwanted Thoughts, control compulsive behaviors and overcome anxiety, it's definitely worth checking out. It's great to be able to take the time to emphasize the love and mercy that God has for us in this situation and to remind your child that God is practical and he understands what we're going through and understands us better than we understand ourselves. This approach combined with the OCD workbook will hopefully help to pull back some of those intrusive thoughts. As to the last part of your question, you've been hearing comments about OCD just being a form of spiritual attack and someone in your life keeps telling you to quit labeling it as OCD and to, quote, renounce it. I'm sure you know where I'm headed with this one. (laughs) No, absolutely not. OCD is a mental health experience that happens for a variety of possible reasons, genetics, brain chemistry, the environment we're living in, and is not something caused by a spiritual attack. Could an evil spirit harass us and cause us to experience something that looks like OCD? Sure, probably. Is that common? Absolutely not. It is far more common that the experience you're talking about is a mental health issue that is treated by a specific type of very effective therapy and medication when needed. And instead of renouncing the symptoms, we should follow the evidence and get connected to helping professionals who can absolutely be the answer to our prayers for healing and wellness. Just remember that we'll be praying for you and your son. Talia wraps us up. I'm a new teacher and I'm really shaken by what's happened in Texas. How can I feel safe in my classroom again? (sighs) Please join me in praying for Talia, for all teachers and students, for those souls of the kids and the teachers who died in the recent shooting in Texas, and for our nation to do something to save our children and for those who have given their lives to educate them. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. First off, thank you so much for being a teacher. 
It's one of the most important jobs out there, and I'm so grateful that you've chosen to be a part of it. Our kids need compassionate and caring teachers who will help them along their journey, and I'm sure you're going to be exactly that for all the kids you teach. What happened in Texas is absolutely horrifying. The pain and suffering and grief and loss is just overwhelming to take in. And the vicarious trauma that this situation has passed along to teachers and students across the country is real and deserves a response from their schools as we move forward. We're going to take a look first at Axios.com for some thoughts. Axios asked University of Pennsylvania psychologist Howard Stevenson, an expert in violence prevention and racial stress and trauma, for tips on how adults can cope in the aftermath of Uvalde. Don't suppress your feelings. Listen to your body and thoughts and keep tabs on how you're responding to information about the tragedy, Stevenson said. Engage in self-care. Fear and anxiety may cause people to lose sleep or appetite. Self-care also means to notice that you need to keep living well, he said. Get accurate information. Think critically about your news sources. Look out for exaggerated accounts and challenge information you know to be inaccurate, particularly when talking to people you trust. Helping others to be informed is helpful for your own sense of control and agency in a world that feels unstable, he said. Talk to family members. It's understandable to feel worried for your loved ones. Make a plan together for how best to respond to what's happening in the world, Stevenson said. We'll also look at some thoughts from uh, the American School Counselors Association. So try to keep to routines as much as possible. We all gain security from the predictability of routine, including attending school. Next is limit exposure to television and news. Then be honest with your kids and share with them as much information as they are developmentally able to handle. Listen to your kids' fears and concerns. Reassure kids that the world is a good place to be, but that there are people who do bad things. Families and adults need to first deal with and assess their own responses to the crisis and stress. And then we all need to rebuild and reaffirm attachments and relationships. So back to me, it's a lot to work through, a lot to live with. In general, when we experience vicarious traumatization, we need to remember to increase our self-observation, to keep an eye on our stress levels, engage in relaxing activities and self-care, take care of ourselves physically as much as possible, seek social support, remember to take time for ourselves, even if this means taking time away from work, and remember to be open to the idea of talking with a therapist. Oh, Talia, please know that we'll be praying for you and all the teachers and students out there. Um, we'll just keep praying and, and working and fighting for things to get better. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in a future episode. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexa to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. Until next time... Go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Timphna.